Amen. How are we doing, church? Doing good? Hope so. Hey, grab your bulletin uh, as we get going here and turn it over to the back, and you'll see we've got another marriage retreat on June 10th through 12th. We would highly encourage you, if you're married, to go to that, and especially this is a part of, of what we're calling our men to do, to stand up and act like men. And yes, it is an investment, but we would love for you to invest more into your marriage than you do your golf game. And so sign up. Things little. That's going to get worse. Hey, so one of the things that i let you know, though, it's kind of cool. I think you pronounce that place, Kiss Me Florida. So how bad could that be, you know? And what some of you need to do is you need to go to the marriage retreat, skip all the sessions, get a big bottle of wine, go up into your room that you'll be provided with, and don't come out for three days. Praise God, and God will do more in that time than I could ever do for you. All right? Thus saith me. Can I get an amen? A very deep amen. I'm going. All right. So... uh, uh, if you got your Bibles, I want you to hop over to uh, Mark chapter 9 as we continue in this series on miracles. And today we were talking about casting out demons. And some of you went, that's what's wrong with my marriage, all right? It's possessed by a demon. And it might be true, all right? So bring your demon-possessed husband to our marriage retreat, and there'll be worship, Bible study, and an exorcism. And we will cast out the demon and send you home a demon-free husband, hopefully. All right. Um, we really are talking about casting out demons. So if you think it's going to get weird, it's weirder than you think, all right? You just need to know that. And if this is your first time here, you might need to look to your friend that invited you and was like, really? <laughs> Who are you trying to say? You, uh, you think I'm possessed? Maybe. We'll see. So here, here's what I want to, I kind of want to warn you a little bit, okay? Um, first of all, I will confess that uh, I, to my knowledge, I have never cast out a demon, all right? I'm not a hyper-charismatic kind of guy. Uh, to my knowledge, I've never cast out a demon. I did send a seventh grader home from camp one time, and uh, I think he may have been demon-possessed. Then I met his mom, and I think it was just genetic. All right, so that's just where I'm at on it. <laughs> if you'd have met him, you wouldn't know. You'd be like, yeah, you're probably right. So... <clears throat> Here's what I want to warn you on. There's, there's, uh, sometimes when we talk about uh, the spiritual realm or demonic things or angels and all of that sort of stuff, um, <clears throat> I got to warn you about two extremes. Because if you follow one of these two extremes, you're in trouble. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. I put it at the bottom of your notes. C.S. Lewis says, humanity falls into two equal and opposite errors concerning the devil. Either they make him altogether, either they take him altogether too seriously or they don't take him seriously enough. And so I want to warn you for e- from either of those two extremes, because there's some people that don't think there's anything demonic whatsoever. They're like, see, look, you're taking a hard left into crazy town now, all right? I mean, I get like the teachings of Jesus and stuff, but don't we have words in the 21st century to describe those medieval thoughts, and, and you can't blame every bad thing that happened on the wood fairies from the devil, all right? And here's why I would warn you against saying there, there are no things de- demonic, Because no demonic understanding will lead you to a false sense of self-pride. Because you'll actually think you're more powerful than you are. And you'll begin to think, no, 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 I got this. I got this. This is a purely physical or purely emotional problem. And I got this. And I got news for you. You ain't got this. I mean, come on. Let's just be honest. Are there things in your life and you've promised you would never, ever, ever do them again? And no matter how many classes you take, no matter how educated you are on it, and how many people you tell, and how many times you've promised, there just seem to be things in your life that have power over you, and you want to do good, and evil's right there with you. You see, don't, don't, too mu- don't put uh, too much pressure on you. And so if you don't believe in anything spiritual or demonic, then, then I would warn you because it can lead to false pride. And then all the way on the other end of it, there's some people that believe there's like a demon around every corner, right? Some of you ladies this morning in the bathroom were like, demon, come out. And your husband came in, baby, what's going on? It's like, my hair is possessed by a demon, all right? It's curly or straight or, you know, you always want what you don't have, all right? And I think it's just humidity. I don't think it's the devil, all right? I think that's what it is, I think. So here's the thing, demons really exist, 
Jesus really believed in them too. And so when Jesus taught us the Lord's prayer, part of the Lord's prayer is this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so I get, I get asked this question often when bad things happen in our lives. Am I being attacked by the devil? I can say categorically in one sense, yes. Because even if the devil, sometimes the devil doesn't have, atta- have to attack you because you're doing a fine job on your own, you're ruining your life all by yourself. But, but everything that we experience that is bad is at least collateral damage from the fall. You see, there was a time when God created man and woman where every cell obeyed God and every will obeyed God and everything was working perfectly. And then sin entered the world and everything was twisted. If you go back to Genesis 3, not only was Adam cursed and Eve cursed and the, and the snake or the serpent cursed, but all of creation was cursed, which means that when you and I experience pain and a loss of hope and a loss of joy and those kinds of things, it's at least collateral damage from the enemy trying to steal God's glory and your joy. The good news in that is this, is that Jesus came to make all things new. That Jesus didn't just come to forgive you and me of our sins personally, but he also came to set everything right. That when Jesus died on the cross, it was to make all things new. And there will come a day where Jesus returns and he puts everything in its right place, which means there will come a day where every cell in your body will obey. And every thought that you have will do what it is supposed to do. And every desire that you have will be for the right things if you are in Christ. That heaven could be described this way, that you wake up every day, I don't know if you sleep in heaven, but if you do, you wake up every day and you do exactly what you want to do all day every day and you never regret it because everything has been made new. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we live in a world where we have an enemy, we have a spiritual enemy and his job description is in the Bible in John 10, 10. He has come to steal and to kill and to destroy you and me. And so the reality is this, the understanding that we have to have is this, is that you cannot cast out the flesh and you cannot disciple a demon. And so most of the time when you and I have struggles in our life, it's some kind of combination in both. And so I land somewhere in between those two extremes. And so if you got your Bible, go to Mark chapter nine and uh, I'm going to teach, actually I'm going to teach Mark chapter nine and Luke chapter eight. And I know that Pastor Stone was griping last week about how many verses that he had to preach. And I can tell you one other thing, that brother can't count to 45, all right? I can guarantee you that, because it was like 58 minutes, all right? So I'll have a little talk with him when I see him this week about a log in his eye or a plank or something like that. So about for the next 45 minutes or so, since that time is irrelevant, I'm gonna walk through Mark 9, and then we're gonna jump to Luke 8, and then we're gonna be back in Mark 9. So here we go. It's about casting out demons. Verse 14 of Mark 9. He says, and when they, and I gotta stop there. This is why it takes me forever, okay? So the they here is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And they're just coming off of the mountain of transfiguration. And so what happens on the mountain of transfiguration is that Jesus goes up on this mountain and he reveals himself in his glory. The Bible says that he shines like the sun or he is bright as lightning, that he reveals his glory. And sometimes in Bible study, I used to always think, how come Peter, James, and John get to do all the cool stuff? Does Jesus just like them better? And as I dig into the scriptures more, I think what possibly could be happening and more probable is this, maybe Peter, James, and John were the only ones that Jesus did not feel comfortable to leave without parental supervision. 
Maybe Jesus is like, y'all stay here and pray. I'm going up on the mountain. Peter, James, John, get in the car. All right, I think that's what's going on. <clears throat> and part of the reason I say this is because they're consistently screwing everything up. And I think part of the reason that Jesus calls Peter to be a disciple is so that people like you and I would feel better about being a disciple. So here's what's happening. Jesus is on this mountain and he is transfigured like a transformer. He's just displaying the glory of God. And there's Moses and Elijah. They've been dead for 1,500 years between them. And they're having this conversation. And he is, Jesus is shining as bright as the sun. And then Peter opens his mouth and sticks his head in and says, it is good that we are here. <laughs> okay, just a note to self as you're walking with Jesus. If you ever find yourself on a mountain where Jesus is shining like the sun, talking to dead Moses and dead Elijah, shut up. It might not be about you. And so here's what he says. Peter says, it is good that we are here. We should stay up here forever. Tell you what, I can make a tent. One for you, Jesus. One for you, Mo. And one for you, Eli. We'll just sleep on the ground. Let's just stay up here forever. And then God the Father interrupts and basically says, Peter, shut up. My son's talking. That's kind of the message, the remix. All right, loose translation. But that's what happens. And the reason is because Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're not going to stay up here. We're not going to stay up here. You see, because our ministry is actually at the bottom of the hill. And it's sort of a warning um, to church folks. Because if you've, been, if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, and you love this event, one of the things that, that you can miss out on is you can be so in love with the church service that you miss the church service. That we are to gather in this place as a body of believers in all of our locations. And we are to just worship God in all of his glory, but we are not to stay here every day. And the reason why is because when we walk out of these doors and when we go into our lives and into our schools and into our workplaces, that's where the real ministry is taking place. Because at the bottom of this hill, we're gonna find a dad who is absolutely desperate, desperate. And the last thing he needs is for Jesus and the disciples to be just showing off on, on top of the mountain. But he needs direct access to an absolute miracle. And so when they, Peter, James, John, and Jesus, they come off the mountain of transfiguration and they came to the disciples and they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes, those are religious people, arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, they were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and they greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered them, teacher, this is the dad, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. And so I ask your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. You see, this, this man, uh, can you see the desperation in his voice? If you're a parent, you don't even have to imagine. You know what it would be like if something was wrong with your child or if something is wrong with your child, you would do absolutely anything and everything in your power and even beyond it to do whatever it takes for the health and well-being of your child. And so he's like, Jesus, I came looking for you, but you were up on the mountain and I thought you were disciples would do. And so I brought the boy, my son, I brought him to your disciples, to, to do something about this demonic possession, and they couldn't do anything about it. Now, at this point, at this point, a lot of us expect for this kind of um, wussified Bible bookstore Jesus to show up. Because, because that's the Jesus that most of us, if you grew up in the kind of a southern evangelical church, that's the kind of Jesus that has been uh, portrayed to us. 
kind of this wimpy, effeminate, uh, Swedish Jesus with blonde hair, no split ends, a bathrobe with a Miss America sash that floats on over and just pets sheep all day. Oh, did you guys couldn't cast out the demon? Try again, tiger. That is not what he does. And I think a lot of times when we... When we act this way, when we sin, when we lack faith, I think sometimes we think Jesus is just going to give us a little pep talk. Come on, try again. You see, um, I get to meet some, all kind of people as the pastor of this church. It's kind of crazy. I'm just a redneck from Dillon, and I know all these people now, okay? It's kind of crazy. And uh, maybe you've heard that uh, one, of the, one guy that's been attending here when he's in town is Tim Tebow. And it's true. Tim Tebow attends here when he's in town. And usually the way it goes, I've gotten to know him over the past couple years, and do Bible study with him and stuff. He's a great guy. He loves the Lord. And so when he comes, he'll just text me on Sunday morning. Hey, man, can I come to church? As if I'm going to be like, nah, not today. I don't think we're for you. So I'm like, yeah, sure, come on. And he also knows that uh, most of you gators are um, idol-worshiping, you know, people. And he doesn't want to jack up your experience or his or our whole church, you know, that I would come up here and then I'd be like, where is everybody? Oh, they're in the parking lot with Timmy. He's signing autographs. So... When he shows up, he comes in the back. We kind of have a back cave that we can't tell you about. So he comes in the back cave, and, and it ends up going through my office, all right? And so I get a text about, I don't know, a month ago or something. Hey, I'm coming. Great. So meanwhile, I've got a son named JP. He's 10 years old, and he plays baseball. And he has all-star baseball practice right now. It starts in four minutes, all right? And so on Sundays, I'm always in a little bit of a scramble. I'm kind of parenting with one hand and pastoring with one hand. And so in between services was a little bit hectic for me. I'm backstage and I'm getting JP dressed in his baseball uniform and stuff. And so about a month ago, JP says, hey, dad, I just really don't want to go to practice. I just want to stay here at church. And I wish I could say that the reason that he wanted to stay at church is because he just wanted to study the word of God and sing glory to Jesus and and to enjoy the fellowship of the saints. I wish that's what it was. But in reality, all the staff kids, after they go to the nine o'clock service, we have this room called the lion's den and they get to hang out there and play video games and he just doesn't want to leave. And so he's pouting. He's like, I don't want to go to practice, you know? And I'm like, I'm, I'm, and again, I'm like, you will and you'll get ready and you make a commitment. You know, I'm just kind of parenting and, and trying to hurry because the countdown clock is on. And literally I look up and Tim Tebow walks into my office. It's like a Saturday night live skit. You can't make this stuff up. I'm like who the heck am I that this is my life, okay? And so I'm in a hurry. I'm like, Timmy, Talk to the boy about practice. Everybody calls him Timmy. And so with Jesus as my witness, he Tebow's down on one knee, son. And he gives him this little pep talk about how you need your team and your team needs you. And he's like, yeah, you got it. And then I'm like, you ready to go now? He's like, "Uh uh-huh, I'm ready. And so I had to come on out and Tebow comes out a little while later. And so I don't get to talk to JP until it's all over, you know, that, that afternoon. I'm like, JP, did you say anything else to him? And he said, I asked him if he wanted to sign your Georgia helmet. He said, no. <laughs> it's just true. <laughs> Jesus, no pep talk. Jesus does not do this little, you know, like, hey, you got it and you're good enough. None of that. Here's what Jesus says to the boys. He says, Oh, faithless generation. Now, this is a big deal. We talk about faith around here all the time. The reason why? Because faith is only the most important thing. The Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. That faith is the currency by which we know God. And so Jesus calls them the faithless generation. And there's a difference. Now, there's a difference between believing in, trusting in, and believing that. And he says, you faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. 
Now, parents, you know what this is like. You ever try to help your kid with their homework, but it's getting, you're getting tired and you're ready to go to sleep. And you're like, no, 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 you carry the one. I don't know this crazy math they teach you in these public schools today, but you carry the one. Just bring it to me. And you take the homework and you just do it. You ever do that? I know you're not supposed to, but whatever. Sometimes you got to go to bed. You know what I mean? That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's like, you faithless generation, just move, bring him to me. And so the dad does. He brings him, brings the boy. And it says, verse 20, and he brought the boy to him. And when the spirit, this is the spirit in the boy. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. You see, what happens here is that the demon in the boy realizes and recognizes who Jesus is. And, and, and by the way, at this point in Mark, nobody even really understands who Jesus actually is. You see, there's a big difference in believing in and believing that. The disciples don't understand much about Jesus, but they believe in him. They've surrendered their life to him and they're following him. These demons understand exactly who he is, but they don't know him. See, the Bible says this in James 2, 19. It says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So I've got some pretty awful news for you. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but you don't believe in him, you've never surrendered your life to him. I mean, I know this sounds really mean, but I swear it's loving. You're in the same category as a demon. You could be theologically accurate and not have a relationship with him. So now what I want you to do is I want you to hit pause here in Mark 9, and I want you to bounce over to Luke chapter 8, because there's a different um, demonic possession going on here and exorcism is a totally different uh, story or different event. And I want you to see here how well the demons know who Jesus is, but they don't surrender to him. Okay. And we'll spend about, we'll call it 45 minutes on Luke eight, since that time means nothing at all. All right. So Luke chapter eight, beginning in verse 26, a totally different experience here. It says, then they, that's Jesus and all the disciples. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he'd worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Now, don't, this is not just descriptive here. I mean, this is really, really sad. You see, the reality is, is this is not how this man saw his life turning out. This is not how this man saw his life turning out at all. I mean, when his mama and daddy took him home from the hospital, they did not think that this is how their boy was going to end up. That not only was he naked and bankrupt and out of his mind, but basically he was living among the tombs. In other words, this man had been controlled by something that absolutely bankrupted his life. Now, let me just ask, have you ever been there? Now, now, there is demonic oppression and there is demonic possession, but all of us are influenced by evil. Have you ever wanted to do good and you just couldn't do it? Have you ever promised over and over and over, I'm never going to do that again, but it's just like the only way you know how to describe it, it's like something in here almost takes over. It's like you lose sense of everything you know. You see, today, you know what we would call that most often? We'd call that Addiction that you reached out to grab onto something and then one day you realize, uh-oh, that thing has grabbed onto me. It has control of me. We would call that addiction. Now, I'm not saying that every addict is possessed by a demon, but I am also saying everybody's not free and clear. It's not just simply a physical or emotional situation. Um, 
You see, addiction in America, it, it's, I mean, it's overwhelming. Over 20 million Americans over the age of 12 have an addiction. 100 people die every day from drug overdoses. That rate has tripled in the last 20 years. Over 5 million emergency room visits in 2011 were drug-related. 2.6 million people with addictions have a dependence on both alcohol and illicit drugs. 9.4 million people in 2011 reported driving under the influence. 6.8 million people with an addiction have a mental illness. Rates of illicit drug use are highest among those 18 to 25. Over 90% of those with addiction began drinking, smoking, or using illicit drugs before the age of 18. Here's what I'm telling you. Is that it's like there's something in here that you just can't get control of. I mean, I mean, you want to, and you've tried to, and you know better. And sometimes, sometimes it's an addiction to illegal drugs or an addiction to prescription drugs or addiction to alcohol or an addiction to pornography or an addiction to sex or an addiction to whatever. But it's almost like, I mean, you call it whatever you want to, but it's almost like there's something in you that just overtakes you and you lose control. It's not just a lack of willpower because you've tried so stinking hard over and over and over. And this is not the life that you thought you were going to live. And this is, this is not the life you thought your loved one or your child or your brother or your sister was going to live. And essentially they're naked and they're out of my, their mind and they're, they're living among the tombs. I mean, they've bankrupted their life. And this is not the way you saw it going. I think this is what's going on with this man. A, a doctor named Cornelius Plantiga says this, addictions begin when we use something we believe will relieve distress. But then eventually the addictions create their own distress and finally addicts spiral down when they try to cure the additional pain with the very thing that caused it. You see, you've tried to stop. Or you know people, and they've tried to stop over and over and over, and their life right now is, metaphorically speaking, they are naked and alone and living amongst the tombs. And it might not be, it might not be um, a physical substance. Sometimes it's like an emotional control. Like there's no reason externally for you to be so depressed. And you don't want to be depressed. I mean, if half the world had your life, they would love it. And yet you wake up every day and you've tried so stinking hard to like muster up these positive feelings and you just, it's like your emotions are out of control or you're so anxious. You're just so stinking anxious and you can't even explain it. And you don't want to be that way. It's like this thing has control of you or you struggle with an eating disorder and it's like it's got a grip on you and it won't let go. And even though the rest of us think you look great, you cannot convince yourself that we are right. You see, there's more than just physical and emotional. That our battle is not only against flesh and blood, but principalities of evil. And so here at 1122, let me assure you of this, okay? The way that we think you should attack these things, it, it has to do with the great, the great commandment that Jesus gave. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So what that means is there is a physical aspect to it. There's a relational aspect to it. There's a mental aspect to it, but there's also a spiritual aspect to it. And so we would, I would just say, see a doctor. If, if you're struggling with anything I'm going to mention today, please see a doctor. And if a professional prescribes medication for you, take medication. And you should see a biblical counselor. 
And in addition to that, not just instead of that, but in addition to that, and then you also bring it to Jesus because it's not just mental, it's not just physical, and it's not just emotional. We have an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. I am not anti-doctor. The Bible says every good and perfect gift is from above which means every day all over the world, people in hospital beds cry out, dear Jesus, please heal me. And he says, I hear your prayer and in walks your doctor. You see, it's the common grace of God that he has given us so much healing through medicine and technology. But just medicine and technology is not enough. That there is a spiritual realm and you know it. Even if you don't believe it, it's okay. Even if you don't believe it, you know, you know right now, there are times when there's just something in here and you can't get control of it. Your willpower is not enough. And see, demons want to destroy lives. That's why this man is living in the tombs. Now, this isn't just theory for me. This has affected my family. My hero growing up, my absolute hero, was a cousin of mine. His name's Randy. And Randy, he's about 10 years older than me. He grew up next to the town that I grew up in. He was like the coolest guy I ever met. He used to ride me around on his motorcycle. He showed me how to work out. He's super athletic, super successful, married a beautiful woman, had beautiful kids, was making bank, he's doing awesome, hurt his back working out. Got addicted to prescription pain pills, which led to an addiction in illegal drugs. And then he got hurt again, hurt his back again, and the doctor told him, hey, you, you won't be able to work anymore. So he told his mom, my aunt, not only am I worthless, but now I'm useless. And that night, at night he took a 38 and put it to his head and pulled the trigger. And it didn't kill him. If you were here two and a half years ago, I asked us to get together and pray. And so he did it again. And it didn't kill him. And here's what I'm telling you. That version of Randy was not the man I knew when I was growing up. Something took control of him, and yes, it was physical, and yes, it was emotional, and yes, it was mental, but it was also spiritual. We're not talking about theory and theologies here. We're talking about events. And here's the thing. Some of you either are people like that or know people like that. This is not the way you saw your life going. And when you were young and fun, you reached out to try to grab hold of something. But if you're honest, that something has a hold of you and you do not know how to shake it. And so I think that's a part of what's going on with this man. Now, the crazy thing is sometimes God actually allows you to get here so that, so that uh, it's not until you like die to yourself that you can be resurrected again with Christ. And so here's how Jesus responds. Verse 28. It says, when he saw Jesus, when the possessed man saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell down before him and he said in a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, this is important. This is the first time that Jesus has been rightly identified in the gospel. By who? By a demon. See, they know who he is, but they don't know him. Do you see the difference? Please see the difference. And the people that don't really understand his disciples, they don't even know exactly what they're looking for, but by faith, they've been following him. And these demons, they would score higher on a theology test, but they don't know him. And so here's what they say to him. I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. In other words, he only tried to deal with this physically and it just was not enough. Verse 30, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, 
for many demons had entered him. Legion in a Roman army was 6,000 soldiers. Verse 31. And they, these are the demons, and they begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. You see, because again, they know what's going on. Not only do the demons know who they are, they know who Jesus is, and they know what their future is. The demons know, Revelation uh, chapter 20, that one day when Jesus comes to make all things new, he's gonna take the evil one, all his demons, and everything evil, and he's gonna cast it into the abyss forever and ever, amen. Which means for every believer, not only are we saved from the penalty of sin, and the power of sin, but one day we'll even be saved from the very presence of sin. And what the demons are like, is, is it fourth quarter already? We thought we had more time. Please, please don't throw us into the abyss. Verse 32, and now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. And so Jesus gave him permission. And then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake, and they drowned. And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and they told it in the city and in the country. And then people went out to see what had happened. Of course they did. Can you imagine the story? The herds, herdsmen run up like, y'all ain't gonna believe this. Remember that naked guy that hangs out, you know, behind Walmart and where we keep our kids away from him? All right, well, Jesus came up and took, kid, and took, took these demons out of the man and put them into a bunch of pigs. And you know that, that phrase, when pigs fly? Well, they did and they right into the ocean. All right, it's crazy. It's like, like rubberneckers on 95. They'll be like, what happened? And everybody shows up to see what happened. And they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone. And here's the result. There's three things. When Jesus set this man free, number one, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because that's where all healing comes from. Regardless of what you believe, that's where all healing comes from. And sometimes, sometimes, it's through a miraculous touch, but most of the time, it's through the common grace of doctors and nurses and counselors and medicines. But all of it, the Bible says every good and perfect gift is from above, which means if anybody's ever been set free, whether it was through meetings or whatever it was, that it all, it all essentially comes from Jesus. So he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Two, he's clothed. Like his whole life's changed. And the third thing, and he is in his right mind, that there is mental healing. Now, here's what you have to understand. We've, we've based this whole series of miracles on this premise. If the tomb is empty, anything is possible. And the people that knew this man best, they had probably given up hope. In their minds, they probably thought, there is no way that this crazy man living in the tombs with no clothes on can ever be restored. But if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. Which means this, some of you know some people and love some people or are some people and your life has been bankrupt because some other thing outside of you got inside of you and you feel like it has control over you. And what I would say to you is there is hope because if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. It's also true in my cousin Randy. He did not die. They found him in the bed with two bullet wounds in his head. And I stood up here a couple years ago and begged our church to pray for my cousin, and he survived. He came out of the hospital, and my family rallied around him, and we found him a, a uh, Bible-based Christian rehabilitation center, and we funded it, and we sent Randy to it. And this is crazy. About four weeks ago, this random guy comes up to me after 1122 service and says, I just got out of that camp with your cousin. He's a good man, and he's rekindled his relationship with Jesus. 
And so the reality is, is that if, if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible, even for you or even for that son or daughter or cousin or coworker or college roommate that you've been praying for like crazy. And so <clears throat> he's in his right mind. And then the people that came to watch, they're afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart from them, especially the pig farmers. They're like, you've got to go, all right? <laughs> For they were seized with great fear. And so Jesus and the boys, they got into the boat and they returned. And the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. It makes you kind of scratch your head, but Jesus, you're not going to let people follow you. I think what Jesus is telling this man is the same thing that he was telling the boys up on the mountain of transfiguration. Hey, listen, the greatest things ever happened to you just happened to you. And so do not hang your head about your past, but you let your past be a platform for the glory of God. By the way, that's next week's sermon. That here at 1122, I don't care what you've been addicted to or what you've done or how many times you've sinned, you do not walk in here with your head held low. Not if Jesus died on the cross for you. And the reason is because he is the propitiation for your sin. And I still have people like, Pastor, why you got to use big words like propitiation? Listen, if you can order a caramel macchiato, you can understand propitiation. <laughs> propitiation means a payment that satisfies, which means when Jesus died on the cross and he says it is finished, the payment for all of our sin is satisfied, which means God cannot be dissatisfied in you. He knew the demons that, that had hold of your life when he saved you, and he saved you anyway, and he, he didn't need you leave you naked and afraid in the tombs, but he brought you to life and adopted you into his own family. Look, he ran the Carfax on you. It came back lemon and wrecked, and he bought you anyway and fully restored it, and he kind of digs it, rides around town in it all the time, okay? Sort of. All right, so back to Mark 9. So Luke 8 is so that you would know... Uh, what addiction can look like when something has control of you and that those demons recognize who Jesus is, but they don't know him. So back to Luke 8, here's this dad. He brings his son to Jesus with great desperation. Verse 21, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the dad says, from childhood. And it's often cast him into the fire or into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. See, there's a lot going on there. This is all a demon will do. It is all the devil wants from you. And I don't think that any of you have willfully tried, decided to follow the devil. But if in your life you've been Lord of your own life, it leads to a place of destruction. That's it. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy you. The enemy wants to bait you down a road that leads over the cliff and then laugh as you run your life into that ditch. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Those are your two options. And so the dad, I mean, do you see? Do you see the anguish in the dad? He's trying to kill my boy. This is not what I imagined when I had kids. But if you can do anything, have compassion, who? On us and help us. Why? Because sin always has collateral damage. There is no such thing as private sin. There is no such thing as personal sin. It always affects us. You see the desperation? Something, something has control of his boy. You ever been there? You ever show up to church and you just need Jesus like crazy? Like, Jesus, if you can, 
look, I'm bringing my sister, I'm bringing my dad, I'm bringing somebody with me, or I'm bringing my own junk. And somebody told me that I could show up in this place and I wouldn't get kicked out. I know you do because I read your prayer cards every week. And my favorite one is when you say, and by favorite, I mean the one I don't like at all, is when it says, dear Pastor Joby, I'm bringing such and such. Please don't preach a dud. <laughs> awesome. So he says it, Jesus, if you can. I've tried everything else. Nothing's worked. If you can. And then Jesus says to him, if you can. If you can. All things are possible for the one who believes. To which I think the man went, dang it, that's what I thought you were going to say. That's what I thought you were going to say. Because how can I just believe? You ever try to believe? I mean, have you ever tried to believe? Some of you do, right? You showed up here, you're like, all right, I'm going to believe. Today's my day, okay? I'm going to believe. And then you're like, okay, I still don't. I mean, where is it? Like, how do you just believe something? It's like trying to sleep. You ever try to sleep? You're just like, it's getting worse, all right? You can't. But during worship, you look at the guy next to you, and he's just believing for everybody, just like the big weeping willow up there and crying. And you're like, come on, I can't do it. That's this guy. Verse 24, here's how I know it's this guy, because it says, immediately the father of the child cried out. In other words, it was on the tip of his tongue. What he's about to say is on the tip of his tongue, which means it was lodged deep in his heart, because Jesus says it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so the first thing, immediately, when he says, if I can't, anything's possible for him who believes in them. Immediately, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Anybody there? Anybody there? Great, first two rows, the rest of you are liars, all right? Come back next week, you got a lot to learn. Come on, be honest. I know it's church, no place for that. Anybody there? Anybody got the I believe, I wanna believe, I wanna have faith, but there's a whole lot I don't understand. That's me, I pray that more than anything else. And check it out, folks, I work here. That's it. Self-doubt, you know, you know what a, a translation of the name for the devil is? Devil means the accuser. He just accuses us all the time. Just trying, to, just trying to knock that faith off, off his throne. And so he says, I believe, but help me overcome or help my unbelief. So if some of you right now, some of you feel like there's some things in your life that have control of you, and you're not sure if you believe all this stuff, guess what? You make a perfect candidate to be a great disciple. Let me tell you what you do when you have doubts and you have unbeliefs and you have unanswered questions. You pick them all up and you just follow after Jesus. You don't have to understand everything to believe in him, to trust in him. Because guess what? If you do it long enough, you don't have to believe anymore. Here's what I mean. You surrender your life to Christ and follow him. Guess what? One day you end up in heaven. And in heaven, nobody's going to come up to you and be like, do you believe in Jesus? You'll be like, he's sitting right there. <laughs> What's up? Nice throne. I mean, that, that's where that leads. So this guy, because here's what's important. It's more important to have 1% of little, tiny, mustard seed faith or belief in. Even with 99% doubt, if you just got this little, tiny, itty-bitty mustard seed of faith in the almighty, sovereign, powerful God, that's better than having 100% of faith in yourself. You see, it's not how much faith you have, but it's who you put your faith into. So this dad says, I believe, and I'm trying, and I want to, God, I need help. Help my unbelief. You see, <clears throat> here's the problem. A lot, of, a lot of us have been sold this bill of goods, which is an absolute lie, that it's the amount of faith you have that moves God to action, as if, as if God's got this faith meter, right? 
And if you pray and do a Bethmore Bible study and then go to a disciple group and then mission trip, ding, 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 and then God owes you. That is not how it works at all. And she just come broken and desperate. Do you see how desperate this dad is? Desperate. And I started desperation for God that says, Lord, you're the only hope. You're my only hope. I don't know what else to do, God. I want to believe so bad. I want to stand firm in faith like Paul to live as Christ, to die as gain. But I don't really feel that way. I'm just broken and crawling up here going, Lord, my, my life's in the tombs where my son is possessed and I need help. I believe, help my unbelief. And here's what Jesus does. Jesus does not give him a to-do list. Jesus doesn't say, well, don't miss the rest of the miracle series because it is going to be awesome. Okay, I help write it. That is not what he does. Here's what he says. It says, and when Jesus, verse 25, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Verse 26, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So most of them said, he's dead. Here's why I think this is in here. Deliverance might not be a walk in a park for you. It might almost kill you. It might almost kill you. But it might be that it's not until you die to yourself and you're laying there and everybody around you thinks you're dead that Jesus can resurrect you to the life that he had created for you. And so they look at him like, he did. And then the next, look at the next two words, but Jesus. Man, I just saw this this week as I was studying this. They say he is dead. Next words, but Jesus. That could be the byline for our entire miracle series. See, you got some hopes, and you thought they were dead, but Jesus. And you, you saw some opportunities, but they're dead, but Jesus. Or you had this relationship, and you thought it was dead, but Jesus. The good news is, it's only the creator of life that gets to determine when something's dead or not. And what Jesus says right here is, now you don't get to be dead. I'm going to let you be dead yet. Everybody else says he's dead, but it don't matter what everybody else says. Only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. And to the boy, he says, you ain't dead yet. And so, but Jesus took him by the hand and he lifted him up and the boy arose. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately. Why privately? Because the last time they talked to Jesus, they kind of got spiritually body slammed. Remember that? Bring him to me. So Peter's like, oh, hey boss, can I ask you something real quick, quiet, okay? Uh, why couldn't we cast it out? Verse 29, and Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. <laughs> to which Peter's probably like, what an idiot. That's like exorcism 101, prayer. That's where we start. Uh-huh. Here's what Jesus is saying, because you can't, but only Jesus can. And prayer is going to the throne room of God because, because Christ made a way. And say, God, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. So check it out. Here's how we're gonna, here's how we're gonna end today. If you're getting nervous, you should be. That <clears throat> we're gonna do what the Bible says. And we're gonna pray for anybody in here that has any kind of addiction or any kind of control problems, whether they're emotional or physical or whatever. And here's what, here's what we're gonna do. We are gonna pray for you because that's what the book says to do, that we're just gonna pray. And if you're like, man, I don't believe this stuff, great. You're gonna make a perfect, perfect disciple of Jesus. How about if you just want to? How about if you just want to be set free? Just by, in the, I mean, you know, you got a whole bunch of reasons why this sounds crazy to you, but just in case Jesus is who he says he is and he always keeps his promises. And you should come and be prayed for. 
And the Bible in James chapter five says this, is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church, anoint them with oil and pray for the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. And so look, I got oil and I am not an overly charismatic person. Okay, I've told you before, I grew up Baptist. The only thing we ever anointed was we anointed our biscuits with gravy. That was as, as far as we went. But I'm gonna be a man of the book, okay? This is what the book says to do, so that's what we're gonna do. And so, whether it's emotional or physical or substance abuse or pornography or sex or whatever it is, that thing, you can't even fully explain it, but somehow my words have made more sense to you than you've ever been able to make of the situation that you find yourself in. And you feel like something has like control of you and you want it to be gone. And in just a minute, I'm going to pray, and you're going to come down. And your, your prayers, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And we've got some people lined up, and they're going to pray for you. Here, and in the sanctuary, and at Bay Meadows, every location. And then some of you, some of you, like the dad here, it's not you, but man, there's some collateral damage. Because somebody that you love like crazy, some kind of addiction or some kind of emotional issue, something has control over somebody you love, man, and if you could reach in there and pull that thing out, you would give anything to do so. And you're gonna come on behalf of somebody in desperation. And then there's one other group that I wanna come. And we have a, we have a really, really high percentage of these people at 1122. Why? Because we're a church for all people. We're a movement for all people. And you're the, you're the men and women or maybe even the students and somebody has labeled you an addict. But for X amount of years, man, you've been clean and sober and you're beginning to realize only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. And so if that's you, I, in just a minute, I want you to come forward too. And you're just gonna say clean and sober for this amount of time. And every prayer up here is not just a prayer of deliverance, but some of them are gonna be a prayer of praise to the glory of God because by the grace of God, you have been walking in freedom. And listen to me, clean and sober crowd, you're gonna come down here because you are gonna give hope to people that are, thought they were hopeless. You see, the Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. I think I'd rather have a sick body than a sick heart. And if the tomb is empty, then hope is alive. And so in just a second, I'm gonna pray. And as I pray, the, the people that are prayers praying over people. You guys are gonna come and the people that need prayer, you're not gonna wait. Don't wait till the third verse. Just even as I'm praying here and in the sanctuary and at Bay Meadows, you're just gonna get down here in front and you're just gonna, you're just gonna claim it. I mean, Jesus said, what is your name? And you're gonna name it. Hey, I need prayer for, or pray for my loved one who is struggling with this or clean and sober for X amount of days. And we're gonna, we're gonna pray, why? Because Jesus is who he says he is and he always keeps his promises. Would you please stand and pray with me? And don't wait, just come on even as I'm praying. Our good and gracious heavenly father. God, I thank you that you as a good dad, that's just who you are. That when you saw your children, children like me, and children like they're filling up your church today. When you saw us possess and oppress God, that you came on a rescue mission that Jesus, you made a way to set the captives free. And Lord, I pray for every man, woman, and student in this place. Lord, I pray, I know that right now the enemy is giving them a hundred million reasons why they should not believe this or they should not step out in faith. And God, I pray that you would give them the only one that matters is because you told them to. Because you are who you say you are and you always keep your promises. And God, I pray for the ones that we love that you would remind us that you love them more. And God, I pray, I pray that in this moment, prisoners would be set free 
that lame people would get up and walk, that blind eyes would see, and that people that were living in tombs would be brought to life. God, they would sit at the feet of Jesus. They would be clothed and be in their right mind. Not because of us, but because you and you alone deserve the glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer, come on.